0: So this evening's talk, um, I can't believe this, but I first started talking to David over a year ago now about this. And I've been delighted at the press coverage or the media coverage that uh, the project has had, especially in the last couple of months. The majority of the broadsheets covered and carried some fantastic photographs of the airship, and I think been BBC did a couple of sessions with one show. So, if timing
1: is everything, then tonight is everything. <coughs> so, without further ado, please welcome Don Stewart, head of the Flight Sciences, David. Thank you. Uh, good evening, everybody. Can everybody hear me okay? So, sound level's okay? So, happy? Bit quiet. bit quiet? Okay. So, um, as Steve said, um, Hybrid air vehicles um, have been in the press quite a lot recently, which makes a change for these talks that I give, because normally my audience knows absolutely nothing about airships, so hopefully I can still tell you some interesting little facts that you may have not picked up from our media coverage so far. So I'm here to talk to you about the Airlander aircraft. So this is a picture, an image from our first flight out in America in 2012. It is the world's largest aircraft. It's 92 meters long. We're in the Guinness Book of Records. And I'll be talking to you about why that com- we're combining the best parts of fixed-wing aircraft, rotorcraft and light-than-air technology. Okay. So the agenda for today, I'm going to give you a history of hybrid air vehicles, the company itself. Uh, oh, there we go. Um, I'll be talking through about airship basics and airships through the ages. I'll also then talk about the design of the Airlander itself why that's better, why that solves a lot of the problems that the old traditional airships used to have. I'll then be talking about the market opportunity and the size, just why we're actually engaging in this business. I'll also talk about the Lenvy competition, so that's something I'll go on to when I get there. It's a US Army competition that allowed us to build the aircraft that we now have back in our sheds back in Cardington. And then I'll give you an update on our return to flight progress, and I'll take some questions at the end. So the history of the company can trace itself back to the 1970s. And as you can see, there's been a number of name changes. Um, Airships have been quite peak and trough. There's been a number of ups and downs through the years. In the 1970s, the company called Airspace Developments was formed. And uh, one of the things that they actually were successful in doing was they held the world altitude record for a hot air balloon. And then in the 1980s, they developed the Skyship 500s and the Skyship 600s, and if you're a James Bond fan, the in the Vuta Kill, the blimp that was used in that was a Skyship 500. Then in the 1990s, it became Westinghouse Airship, an ATG, and they developed uh, an airship called the Sentinel, 1000, which was for the US Navy. And then, round about the end of the 1990s and the 2000s, they started looking at doing something a bit different. So, moving away from these traditional blimp-like Aircraft towards something looking like this. And this is what we call a hybrid air vehicle, which we now call Airlanders. So, over the last 40 years, the company has actually designed over 20 airships that have been certified for passenger use. So, there's quite a long history. This is not just some crackpot idea, we've actually a long heritage here of actual airship design.
0: Keeps cutting in okay. I'm not sure if it's your microphone or where it is on your, yeah, I've got a feeling it's, yeah, let me just, let's keep it like that and just, I know you're an animated man, but try and okay. see how we go with
1: that. Okay. Happy? All right, so in 2007, a company called Hybrid Air Vehicles was actually formed, and that was to look at this new design of airships, this uh, hybrid air vehicle, this Airlander. So, the company today has just over 2,000 shareholders. These are images right now from our, our sheds in Cardington, and you can actually see our complete, well, that picture is not quite complete, but it is now complete, Airlander 10 prepping for flight. Um, the company is designed these Airlanders for both civil and military use. So that's some of the important things for the company. We do have about 100-plus employees now, and we have over 250 man years' worth of experience in airships. So airships, how do they actually work? It's basically Archimedes' principle. So this is a simplified airship. The displaced mass, what's pushing the airship upwards, is simply the volume of that airship, Multiplied by the density of the fluid it's displacing, so in our case, air. We're still cutting out. Still cutting Sorry.
0: out. Sorry. Our uh, question is which one was
1: the other one? That was that one, that was that one? Switch that one off. Hmm? That one should be back on. Okay. Give it a try. Great stuff. How's that? Nothing yet. Nothing? Nothing. So on. Uh, one, two, three, four. Oh, one, two, three, four.
0: They're not doing very well. Right.
1: Okay. Try that. One, two, three, four. On. One, two, three, four. A. Hey.
0: We'll have to keep that when he's <laughs>
1: sure. Okay, can everybody hear me okay now? Is it? Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Fantastic. Right, so as I was saying, airships basically, it's Archimedes principle, it's displacement. So we have the simplified airship here, it's displacing air, and the volume of that air is the, the force effectively pushing it upwards. We have to fill our airship with something, so we fill it with a gas. So the mass of the gas itself, it wants to pull the airship downwards. So in our case, we fill it with helium. In the past, they also filled it with hydrogen, because they're lighter than air. So that gives us our buoyant lift. But we also have the mass of the airship to contend with, so all the weight of the structure and the material and everything in there. So the two masses together, the mass of the gas and the total mass, the mass of the gases and the mass of the airship is what we call total mass. And that total mass is wanted to pull the airship downwards towards the ground as opposed to the displaced mass, which wanted to lift it up. In airships we have something called heaviness, it's a term I'll use again and again, and it's just a simple equation, and if the total mass is greater than the displaced mass, the airship will want to sink, and want to stay on the ground. That's a very, very important thing for our aircraft. Conversely, if the total mass is less than displaced mass, it will want to rise, it will want to lift. And if they're equal, then it's called equilibrium, or we shorten it to EQ. So that's actually how we measure the, the mass of the aircraft itself. When we've built this aircraft, a 92-metre-long aircraft, we know the volume of it, and we start pumping in a known mass of helium. And at some point, we reach equilibrium. So one, two people, either end of the aircraft, just lift it off the ground, They leave it there, and it stays where it is, and we know the mass of the airship, just because we know the volume of it, and we know how much helium we've put in and then we just pull it back onto the ground and we tie it down again, and that's has got our massive our airship. To give you an idea of what a cubic meter of helium can actually lift, it's just over one kilogram of mass. So our aircraft has a volume of 38,500 cubic meters, which means we could lift just over 40 tons, say. But from that, we also have to subtract the mass of the actual structural mass of the airship. So that's why it's critical for airships to be as light as possible so you can lift as much as you can. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So these are some airships through the ages. Up at the top left there, we have the Giffard airship from the 1850s. It's a hydrogen-filled balloon, and you see Mr Giffard sitting there with his little steam engine hanging underneath the aircraft. It has a rudder on the right-hand side there, and that's where the term dirigible comes from, the fact it's steerable. So in the past, hot air balloons were just mercy of the wind, this aircraft was actually powered and the pilot could steer it where he wanted to go. The next airship on that top row is the very first Zeppelin. So most people have heard of the Zeppelins. This is the first flight of a Zeppelin in 1900 over Lake Constance. The the final picture on the right-hand side on the top row there is the R101, so that's a famous British airship from the past, unfortunately it crashed in northern France and that led to the end of Britain's interest in the big, large airships of the past. In this middle row, this aircraft here, the ZM-C2, is an interesting little one. It was built by the US for research purposes, and it's the only metal-clad airship there's ever been. So it's very, very thin aluminum alloy that they've they've injected with helium, and that's flew around for 14 years doing research for the US quite happily. The next aircraft along is called the K-Class blimp. The Americans built over 150 of these during the Second World War. They were used for convoy escort. So these aircraft could actually spot a U-boat with their height advantage, outrun a U-boat and attack it. So it was said that the Germans would never attack a convoy that was being escorted by these blimps. And depending on the book you read, either no ships were ever lost in in an escort or one ship was lost. So it was very, very effective in that sort of anti-submarine, anti-U-boat role. The next aircraft along is the USS Los Angeles, flying over downtown New York, Manhattan there. So with the name USS Los Angeles, you assume it's American. It is, in fact, German. So it was built by the Zeppelin Company as part of the war reparations from the First World War. The Germans were supposed to hand over all of their airships. They destroyed them all. So as part of the deal, they had to build a brand new one for the U.S., So they built one, it was flown across the US and it had a very successful career and was eventually uh, retired and dismantled without any incident. The next airship across, this far right-hand side one, is the USS Macon. The Macon and the Akron were the largest airships the US actually built. These were flying aircraft carriers in the 1930s. So there's a tiny little dot underneath the aircraft, underneath the actual airship, and that's an aircraft that's just been released. So what you actually have was, this is a Sparrowhawk, inside the hull of the Macon, and you can see it's on a trapeze. That trapeze lowers the aircraft outside the hull, it departs, flies its mission, comes back, hooks itself back onto the trapeze, and is pulled back up inside the airship. So that's what the Americans were doing back in the 1920s and 30s. So you can imagine today, almost as a, like a mothership, one of our aircraft could be sending UAV drones off, doing all sorts of stuff, and then collecting that back up. There's a story that uh, the pilots used to, as these airships were flying for days at a time, a pilot would go down to the ground, pick up the mail for the crew, come back up, and everybody would get their letters from home. <laughs> and down on the bottom row here, we have the Graf Zeppelin, which is a, a famous German airship. It was hydrogen filled and it was for tourist flights. It did over 80 return journeys to and from, oh sorry, over 80 journeys from Europe to South America and back successfully without an incident. Here is the Hindenburg, the most famous of all airships. These little dots are people, so you can actually get a sense of just the scale of that airship. The day after the Hindenburg uh, had its accident in Lakehurst, the Graf Zeppelin was retired because nobody wanted to fly in a hydrogen filled airship anymore. Since then, what you associate airships with are more like these Goodyear blimps Sporting events, these types of things, aerial coverage. Zeppelin still exists as a company, and this is what they currently build. It's called the Zeppelin NT, much smaller airship, and it's actually what Goodyear have just bought for their new Goodyear blimps. So the next three airships are going to be Zeppelin NTs. So they're taking German engineers, German parts out to Ohio, and they're building them out there. So there's a difference. You can see a, a real difference between the airships of the past and the airships of today. This is a very faceted large aircraft compared to the very smooth much smaller aircraft that we have today. Re- the reason for that is in the past they used to be called rigid airships and the rigid airships as you can see here this is the USS Shenandoah being built in Lakehurst. It has this exoskeleton this kind of very light metal framework and with inside that they contain gas bags and that contained either hydrogen or helium depending on uh, the time in the country. On the outside of that exoskeleton, they just had a doped fabric and that provided aerodynamic surfaces so the aircraft could fly with as little drag penalty as possible. That was obviously very heavy because you have to have a very large aircraft to support the weight of all that structure. That's why they had to be so big, you had to get the gas volume. A way of reducing the weight would be actually if you could get the skin itself to be pressurized and that would be your structural body you wouldn't have to have this exoskeleton. And that's what we call a pressure stabilized structure. And that's what these modern airships are all made from. All we have is a fabric, a flexible fabric, and we pump it up to get it into tension, and then we just hang everything off the side of it. So we have no internal structure. Everything's just laced on and hung on with ropes on the outside. So again this is going back to a simplified airship model here. We have helium in the upper three sections there. The helium is free to move backwards and forwards. The helium, we should never really allow helium to depart into the atmosphere, so we keep that nice and tight. We then have what we call a baloney, and the baloney is effectively an air bladder. That's what we use to pressurize the rest of the hull. The baloney has an inflation fan and a pressure relief valve. So what we actually do is we inflate that baloney, that pressurizes the rest of the hull, and then we can hang all our fixtures off that. So the pressure differentials that we're going for is about 0.15 psi, so it's very, very, very low pressure differentials, it gives us huge skin tensions because of the size of the aircraft. Okay. So what we do is, in this case here, uh, we just take that centre section just to show how an airship actually works. At sea level, we pump up some air to pressurise the hull to 0.15 psi, and as we start climbing, that helium is wanting to expand. We want to maintain the pressure differential internal to external as constant as possible, so we have to allow air to escape. So that's what the pressure relief valve is for. So the pressure relief valve is set, so the air will start leaking and we keep that constant hull pressure. And you see here uh, this is going from 5,000 feet to 10,000 feet and eventually in this case here at 20,000 feet we've pushed all of the air that we have in our balanies out and that's what we call our pressure ceiling. To go any higher than that, we'd actually have to start venting helium, otherwise we'd overpressurize our hull. Conversely, when we come down, the helium wants to start contracting, so we use our inflation fan to pump up that baloney and we keep that constant hull pressure. So there's a trade-off with airships as to how much helium you have and how much you can lift. In this case here, if you imagine, To get to 20,000 feet, we've pretty much had to fill that centre section with air. If we wanted to lift a lot more, we'd have to put more helium. The only place we can put helium is in that centre section, which means we don't have as much air, which means we can't fly as high because we don't have as much air to push out. So there's a trade-off in airships between how how high you can fly and how much you want to carry. If you want to carry a lot, it has to be at low level, if you want to fly high, you've got limited payload. For the aircraft we've just built, the Airlander 10, If we're flying about 6,000 feet, we can carry about 10 tons. If we're flying at 20,000 feet, we can lift about one and a half tons of mass. So our Balinese um, are actually located, we have ballonets in the forward and at the rear of the aircraft. This is the pilot's primary trim mechanism. So if the pilot came to a stop in the air, what angle the aircraft would sit at is determined by his trim distribution. The air is moved around inside the aircraft. So if the pilot wanted, for example, to tip the nose down, he could lock his pressure relief valves at the front, turn on his air turn on his, his inflation fans. So he's pumping air into those, into those forward balonies and air is being pushed out the rears. That very quickly tips the nose down in this case, just put air in the forward. So the pilot's his primary way of changing trim of the aircraft. He can move, take the nose up or down very, very quickly. It's a very powerful mechanism for us. So some of the problems with the traditional airships of the past, they had to mast pretty much EQ equilibrium. So you can see here, this is the USS Los Angeles again, so the same aircraft that was flying over downtown Manhattan. It's on a mast, pretty much EQ, in light and variable winds. Those are an absolute nightmare for for airships because the wind direction can pretty much come from anywhere. It's about to be hit by a tail gust here. So there are about I think there's 128 people aboard this aircraft at this point. So according to the reports, nobody was actually hurting that. It came down and just it dinged the one of the fins, but nobody everybody was holding nice and tight. So that's one of the things we've tried to solve with our aircraft. Um, Another problem with airships of the past was the amount of ground handling it required, the amount of people that were required to actually launch to recover and actually launch one of these aircraft. So up at the top left here, we have, again, a very small Goodyear blimp, and you just see the amount of people that are desperately trying to grab hold of lines to keep the nose pointing into wind. Those airships are actually very unstable. If you get the nose pointing away from wind, it will want to take off and move away again. So it's vital you keep the nose pointing into wind and you pull it towards the mast and hook it up. The two pictures on the right-hand side are the Hindenburg being launched and recovered. So you just get a sense of how many people it actually required to, to use these, air, these airships in the past. So in the 1970s, aerospace developments uh, were thinking about setting up an airship company. So one of the founders, Roger Monk, and his, his brother's here, I um, actually went to see Barnes-Wallace. So Barnes-Wallace was involved in the R10, R100, which was the, the other airship that was being uh, based at Cardington, as well as the R101. So they actually wanted to find out from the horse's mouth as to what were the problems with the old rigid airships and how can they improve going forward. So the legend has well, that the meeting actually took place in a pub and it was all, all this was scribbled down on a beer mat. But we've never been able to find that beer mat, so it's a, a legend that we have in the company. But what Barnes Wallace told them was you need a better retention of the lifting gas. You need to make it gas tight. That way you can actually allow these big pressure stabilized structures, get the fabric improvements. One of the reasons that the rigids were built rigid in the past was they didn't have the material technology that we have today. They also talked about that we had to use modern composite materials and plastics get the weight down. So going back to that equation of heaviness, we had to get down that total mass so we can actually lift more stuff. Also developing vector thrust. So airships, just like aircraft, um, mainly use forward thrust and they use big control surfaces to fly left, down, upright. But when you slow down those surfaces become useless. So you have to have a way of pushing air around about so you have low speed control. Also to improve the the controls for the pilot. These aircraft are quite large. There's a lot of controls going on. Had to simplify that control system for the pilot. So this is what we came up with. This is our solution. So after 40 years of working in aircraft and airships, this is what we've built. This is called the Airlander 10. So instantly you can see some differences to the previous aircraft I've shown you. It's effectively two airship hulls joined together and that naturally forms a cleft in between the two where we can put all of our major structure. So the front of the aircraft is what we call our mission module and that contains the flight deck and the cabin. About two thirds of the way down the cleft, we have our fuel module and that's where we have the majority of our fuel. We land on what we call skids and these are these air inflated tubes down the side. We have four propulsors, two at the front and two at the rear and we have four fins so that's basically the, the layout of our, of our aircraft. Something to point out again is there's no internal structure, this is just simply pumped up. Everything is just hung off with ropes. You can see some of the bracing cables just on the forward propulsors. Those propulsors weigh just over a ton and they're literally just held on in sheer tension on the skin. So some of the technologies that allow us to actually do this is we have a material which is a composite. So we have Vectran which is a very strong uh, material, uh, quite similar to Kevlar. On top of that we place Mylar for gas retention to keep all the helium in and the air out. And then on the top we cover it with Tedlar which is a weatherproofer. That's the the white layer that you see here. And What we actually do is we cut these into big gores, so big long strips. Of material. We bring them together and then you have a seam and you just use heat and pressure and it basically bonds that material together. And then we just put a weatherproofing strip on the outside. So if you actually look up our aircraft in close, you do see lots of lines running down the hull and that's what that is. That's that weatherproofing strip that we have between our goers. As I said, we use all sorts of modern materials. We have carbon fibre and glass fibre for all of our prime structures trying to keep things as strong and as light as possible. And to get around the uh, vector thrust problem I was discussing earlier, behind each propulsor we have what we call thrust vectoring vanes. So these vanes are formed in a a cross formation, and this little animation from one of our test rigs shows how it works. These vanes move up, down, left, right, and we have a propeller, and we deflect our thrust up, down, left, right, so we have great low speed control, which is vital for us. One of the things that we do with this aircraft is, as opposed to the old traditional airships, which would come in roundabout EQ and massed up, we land like a traditional aircraft. So we're heavy. So we'll actually come down and land on the ground. If we've actually burnt a lot of fuel and we're now light, we can use our vector thrust to drive us onto the ground. And then we just wait for people to add weight to us and we ballast up. We also have modern flight control, so our flight deck has all the modern weather radars and communications that you'd expect from an aircraft. And One of the big advances that we did is this whole aircraft is a lifting body. There is some camber in the hull shape. So this is a little CFD, a little computational animation, just showing some of the lift we're producing. So the whole aircraft itself is a lifting body, and that allows us to operate like a traditional aircraft. We can't land heavy, we just get some ground speed up, we get the aerodynamic lift and we take off. And likewise if we want to land we just slow down, we start losing aerodynamic lift and we just sink to the ground. So this is ground handling. Uh, Our aircraft require nothing like the ground handling of those airships I showed you in the past. This is our very first flight and you can just see in that top right hand picture uh, there is somebody in a the high-vis, there's somebody in a little yellow jacket. That's our ground crew chief, and he's got his helper next to him. So for our aircraft about to land, we have two people on the ground waiting to guide that aircraft in. And once it's on the ground, we just have people on a, a mast coming out to the aircraft. So we need nothing like the infrastructure that the old airships had in the past. As I said, we, we designed them to actually sit on the ground, so we have to design some form of undercarriage. So our, the undercarriage for the Airlander 10 aircraft are these inflatable skids. But we also have some ground support equipment that comes out to the aircraft. We have a mast, which you can just see attached under the nose. These are some very small pictures, which aren't very useful. But we have a small mast that comes out to the aircraft, and it just—it doesn't attach on the nose, it attaches underneath what we call the chin. So it's called a chin mast. So the aircraft is pulled onto the mast and is locked in place. And then at the back of the aircraft, we have the snappily titled castring ground cradle that comes out and attaches to the fuel module and that has a scissor action so it can actually lift the skids clear of the ground and then the aircraft is free to weather vane so it gets hit by a gust and it will just be pulled round quite happily on its mast and on the CGC. As these are large aircraft and there's not many hangars that can actually house these, all of our maintenance has to be done actually on the field. So we designed some platforms. So this is our our forward engine on the left-hand side and the rear engine on the right-hand side. So we actually build these platforms that can be built round about the propulsor in the field and then we can carry out all our maintenance that we have to do. So the way we actually attach these is we have a safety line that goes across the top of the vehicle. Somebody gets dropped on the top of the aircraft from a cherry picker. He goes across, abseils down the side and he starts building this platform round about the propulsor and everything gets winched up and down. And we did that for over a month out in America and it all worked absolutely fantastically for us. So, so talking about weather and safety, um, our aircraft is able to do all its ground operations. So taxi and takeoff landing up to 35 knots of wind. And it's designed to withstand lightning strikes. Um, one of the benefits of these aircraft, if it has icing or snow gathering on top, we just change the pressure and we literally flex the material and it just breaks up any ice or snow and it just falls off. Um, when we're on the mast, we're, a, we're designed, we cleared up to 70 knots of wind. Uh, if there is a stronger wind coming through, we would just take off and just find somewhere safe and we'd just wait for the storm to come through because our endurance is measured in days and, and weeks, so we don't have to make a, a forced landing. In the 1950s, those K-class blimps uh, took part in a US Department of Defense trial. And they found that they had no problem maintaining a continuous barrier, a defensive barrier along the Atlantic seaboard in the States. So that was with 1950s technology, weather radars today, weather prediction, it should be no problem for us weather. Airlanders themselves are actually inherently safe. When I talk about the Lenvy program, uh, when I talk about the surveillance background, the Airlander 10 was actually designed to loiter for long periods. And to do that, we could drop down to one engine. So electrically, the whole aircraft is configured to go down to one engine of its four. So it does mean that if we lose an engine, it's no problem. We could lose two engines, no problem. We could lose three engines, still no problem. The aircraft's designed actually to potentially operate on one engine. We also have altitude control. If we did manage to lose all four engines, which are complete separate systems, we still have altitude control. We can start to dump helium if we're heavy. If we're light, we can dump helium to make ourselves heavy and we start coming down. If we're heavy, we just dump some fuel, and we come back up. Because the body itself is a lifting shape, lifting body, it has a glide slope. It doesn't fall straight down. It glides towards the ground. So the pilot, in that circumstance, could change his heaviness so he'd just have a nice, gentle descent. If he didn't like what was happening, he'd just drop some fuel, make himself light, and he'd try somewhere else. And we also have huge redundancy across the vehicle because if, for example, one of our big rudders failed, we then have those thrust vectoring vanes. All the pilot would do is slow down and then those vanes become very, very powerful at low speed. If they're not if they're not working correctly for him, you can start using asymmetric thrust, which is a hugely powerful tool for us. Damage tolerance. As I said, the hull themselves, it's only a, a very small pressure differential, so any hole um, is a small, small leak. So if your car tire is 32 to 34 psi and you can have a slow leak in your car tire, at 0.15 psi a small leak for us is weeks and weeks and weeks before you'd even notice it. Uh, We design our hull with a reserve factor of 5, so it's, it's very, very safe. This is a quote which I'm not sure if you can actually read, but I'll paraphrase it. It's from Afghanistan. It's from Lockheed Martin. They sent up a lot of aerostats for surveillance in Afghanistan, and they would find that when they brought these aerostats down after days, weeks of a mission, they'd be riddled with bullet holes and they hadn't even noticed the drop off in performance. So we've actually flown a subscale aircraft, which we called HEV-3, a 14-meter long airship. We accidentally once put, uh, drove a forklift truck into it, so actually put the forks into the side of it, and there's no panic. They just take the forklift out the side, you literally get a sticking plaster and you put it on the side and that's it. Leak solved, no problem. When we actually do a a proper repair, it's called windowing. What you do is you, you basically cut a section round about the tear. You take that out, you put some new fabric in and you use that heat and pressure and you basically bond the material. You make it one again. So some of you will remember Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a helium shortage. So it was a genuine, genuine problem. But it was like a perfect storm of things coming together at once. So just by fluke of geology, about 40% of the world's helium lies within the United States' borders. And the United States, since the 1920s, understood the power of helium, because they were building these large airships that were safe, they were not filled with hydrogen that were blowing up. So they started to stockpile it. And they started in Amarillo, Texas, there's this big natural cavern, and they started storing helium in this big cavern. And they were paying American companies to for that helium. But it ran up this massive, massive debt. And over time, obviously fixed-wing aircraft took pardon the pun, fixed-wing aircraft took off and so airships they didn't need that helium anymore. In nineteen ninety-six there was about one point three billion dollars worth of debt on that helium storage facility, and Congress passed a law to say, right we're going to start selling off this helium. Once that helium is sold off and we pay off its debt, then we'll close down that facility. So they were not going to interrupt the the private market. They set the price higher than what you could buy privately. But they did force companies, if you're dealing with the United States, that you required helium, they also required you to buy some from their Federal Reserve. And that was the way they were going to pay off their debts. But what happened was, the inflation rate was set by law which was nothing like the inflation rate that the private market had. And at some point, this Federal Reserve became much, much cheaper than the, private market, than the private market. And the world became hooked on this very, very cheap US Federal Reserve helium. It was supplying about 40% of the world's helium. And it basically paid off its debts much quicker than anybody thought. So in 2013, it was ready to pay off its debts and the world is going to lose 40% of its helium supply, according to the law. At the very, very last minute, Congress passed a, a stay of execution. And they've kept it open, and what they're doing now is they're actually auctioning off that helium. So what's actually happening is the helium price is increasing, and what that's, that's good for us because it means that other countries like Russia, Qatar, um, Algeria, countries that have large stockpiles, are now stripping that helium. Because for the last 10, 15 years, there's been no point in them actually collecting any helium because the Americans could supply it so much cheaper than they could. So that price coming back up is actually helping the worldwide supply. It's becoming more stable. And just helium is a non-renewable resource. So it's a byproduct of radioactive decay. And in 2014, probably the best source for information is the U.S. Geological Survey. So they do a study every year on um, helium. And their 2014 numbers, they estimate about 180 million cubic meters of helium was used across the world. So medical scanners have to use it. Cryogenics have to use it, for example. Um, But their estimates, they have just under 52 billion cubic meters of helium left in the world. So at current usage rates, there's about 290 years left of helium in the world. So. Should be plenty. So we only need a small fraction of that helium. Even if we sold hundred, it's only a small percentage increase on the actual global uh, demand for helium. And one of the benefits we have is we're actually very, very we're actually gas tight. I mean, our, our losses, our helium loss rate is actually tiny. It's really, really good. But what we can also do is we can fly to where the helium is stored. Getting helium somewhere is actually very difficult. It has to be done cryogenically. The Americans had all sorts of problems in Iraq and Afghanistan getting helium where it had to go. We can actually take a couple of days out of our mission, fly to the big uh, helium storage plant, top up, and then go back to do our mission. So it's one of the big benefits we have over aerostats, for example. So these are the aircraft that hybrid air vehicles produce. We have the Airlander 10, which is what I've been talking about predominantly so far. So that was initially designed as a surveillance aircraft, um, up to 21 days endurance in an unmanned configuration. We're now declaring in a manned configuration it can do five days. So with enough space to set up galleys and bunk beds, all sorts of stuff, we can operate it just like a ship. Um, As I said, we can carry up to 10 tons of payload and about 48 passengers if we had it in a passenger layout. The Airlander 50 is on our drawing board and it's basically our cargo carrying aircraft. It can do 65 tons. It can carry six 20-foot iso containers side by side in a nice layout, uh, 200 passengers, we're saying four days endurance for that aircraft as well. And that's, that's more limited just by what crew we could actually cycle through in the time rather than its actual endurance. So this is the Airlander 50 concept for its payload bay. Um, you can see the flight deck on the left-hand side, and some space for some passengers. And then in the cargo bay, we, it's configured so that we can have six 20-foot ISO containers side by side, nice and easy to load and offload. Going back actually to the um, diagram, the difference between the 50 and the 10, the main one, is the 50 has an extra airship hull effectively down the middle, so it's much wider. We call that a trilobe as opposed to a bilobe, which is there under 10. The other difference is it has hovercraft-like landing skids, so it's not the inflatable tube. These are effectively hovercraft pads. So it's much better for ground handling, for cargo, and we can also turn the fans into reverse and we can suck the aircraft down to the ground to aid uh, loading and un- unloading of cargo. So we think the Airlander 10 will revolutionize uh, the market so we don't think there's anything else that can do it. We think it will revolutionize logistics. I mean, our endurance is measured in days and thousands and thousands of miles. Um, one of the benefits of the buoyancy is if we're lifting 10 tons, we only put two or three tons onto the ground. That's what the ground would actually see due to the buoyancy, due to the helium. And it's distributed over quite a large area. So all of a sudden, frozen lakes, marshes, etc., become viable landing sites for us. We don't need a hard runway so an, an empty 747 is about 150 tonnes. You stick 10 tonnes in that, that's 160 tonnes. You need a hardened runway to land that. We can get cargo where it has to go. Anywhere that's relatively flat, we can get it in and land it. So areas of northern Canada, for example, for remote communities, we can get supplies in there. We're not relying on ice roads. We can just get it where it has to go. With that spate of earthquakes in the last, couple, in the last week or so, any broken runway, we can get aid where it has to go. We don't have to land at hub airport and then transport it, we can actually take it to the villages that people need it. Oops. We also think it will revolutionize surveillance. As I said uh, in the unmanned configuration we can do 21 days. You can imagine what the military would love for that type of technology. To be looking down all the time at what's going on. Likewise for surveillance or for events such as the Olympics. Because we can stick We've got over 7,000 square meters of surface area. If we covered that with nice big LED boards, something like the Olympics, sponsors would absolutely love that floating over Rio de Janeiro, showing live events from elsewhere, what are being advertised as well. So you think about the, the, uh, the possibilities there. So we would never try and compete against existing infrastructure. Point to point existing infrastructure will never, airships will never compete with that. This chart here is showing the cost per tonne-kilometre, so the cost it takes to transport one tonne of cargo one kilometre. And we see sea freight is 5 cents, Um, actual rail freight is 10 cents, and on the US highways we're looking at 20 cents. We believe all of our cost models are showing about 50 cents to transport one tonne of cargo one kilometre. So we'd never compete against road rail or sea freight, but what we can compete against, ice roads, 80 cents per tonne kilometre, transport aircraft, $1.50, helicopters, $3.00. So all of a sudden, anything that helicopters can do, we be- it becomes very attractive to look at our aircraft, and we can also fly further, and we can lift more, and we can land in, in other places that they can't actually land. So those are the markets that we're actually going after, when we actually build our, our big cargo aircraft. This is a potential market size. This was done by a company called RS Advisors, uh, trying to understand basically how big this market was gonna be. This one actually surprised us. We thought the Airlander 50 was gonna be the one that was gonna break the market. We thought that's what everybody would want, that big heavy lift capability straight away. What they showed us was that actually, there's so much uh, inertia in the market. People just don't trust airships. It's old technology, it's etc. etc. So they said the Airlander 10 is cheaper that will break the market. If you can show the world that works, so that's the, this the, the blue little mountain here, that starts picking up, people start trusting the technology, then they start buying the Airlander 50 which is the purple. Eventually that's the big market, but it needs something to actually prove to the world it will work. They estimate by 2035 about 600 units could be sold, worth about 50 billion pounds, 50 billion dollars, apologies, to to the UK potentially if we can actually corner this market. So talking now about the, the Lenvy airship competition. So it was launched in the early 2009. So if you can remember um, back then lots and lots of Allied soldiers, British and Americans were being maimed and killed by improvised explosive devices in Afghanistan. The US basically wanted a solution to that and they were willing to provide a lot of money to get something to theatre as soon as possible. What they were finding was that insurgents would spot a drone flying around. They knew that drone only had limited endurance, so they'd just sit and wait for that to go away. When that departed back to base, they'd go plant the IED. So what the Americans said was, right, we want something that's going to fly for 21 days, constantly, looking down on the ground. So airships was the solution for that. So the two main competitors, Lockheed Martin, have been involved in Lighter Than Air for decades and this was their entry, so they had lots and lots of experience and it was thought that they were going to win the contract. Another competitor, Northrop Grumman, came along, Northrop did not have the Lighter Than Air experience but they had fantastic systems, all the, the sneaky beaky, the cameras, all this intelligent stuff. So they came to us at Hybrid Air vehicle and said can we use your aircraft? So we put in our proposal. So our aircraft, our Airlander 10, basically filled with Northrop Grumman kit, and we actually won the contract in June 2010. So the contract initially was for three aircraft, just over 500 million dollars for three aircraft in that program. So at the time when Hybrid Air Vehicles actually won that program, oh, I'll talk about that in the next slide. So, why would the Americans actually be willing to spend that amount of money? Over half a billion dollars for three aircraft. This chart kind of explains this. On the bottom here, we have speed in knots going from zero up to 400 knots. And then on the y axis, we have endurance in days going from zero up to 25 days. The size of the circle, each of these circles represents a different aircraft. And the size of the circle represents the payload it can carry. So, for example, over here we have Global Hawk, so if you're aerospace inclined you'll know about the Global Hawk as a UAV. It can fly just over 300 knots, it can carry about two and a half thousand pounds of payload, and it has an endurance of roughly a day. And these are some other aircraft here, down here's the Predator, which some of you may as well have heard about. And you can see up at the top there is the LemV. so carrying two and a half thousand pounds of payload for 21 days, at low speeds, around about 80 knots. So you can see for that surveillance mission, for that thing of looking out for insurgents, nothing else compares to it. So the plan the Americans had was they'd be looking down all the time. If somebody planted the IED, because they just had to, because they they knew that was gonna be up there for for 21 days, they could hit replay. They could find out where where that car came from, which house that came from, which people visited that house in the last couple of days. Where did they come from? Very quickly, you could understand the network and that was the plan. So we were funded. And at the time, hybrid air vehicles had about 14 people employed. So they just won a half billion dollar contract from the US, and we needed to expand rapidly. That's where I came and I was part of that expansion program. So within a few weeks, we were up to over 100 people. Um, as schedule was everything, <coughs> We worked flat out, it was 24-7 working, it was shift work. Everything was actually built in Bedford, apart from the hull itself. The hull was actually laid up in the States, in situ in Lakehurst, New Jersey. So we actually built everything in Lakehurst, which is where the Hindenburg was based. Um, So so everything was built in a sort of a semi-secret factory in Bedford, in an industrial state, and then we shipped it across the States, built it there, all the autonomous systems, because it was meant to fly unmanned, was being done in California and in Bedford, and that was all being brought together. All that testing was being done in Lakehurst, New Jersey. So in July 2012, we finished all of, we finished the build and we finished all of our major in-hanger ground tests and we were able to take it outside to finish off its high-power engine runs. And then less than 26 months after the contract award, we had our first flight, which for an aerospace program is staggering. And considering we're the world's largest aircraft, it's also very, very impressive. So this is now a video from our first flight. So this is in real time on the 7th of August 2012. The mast has just been removed on the right-hand side. Also, the hangar on the right-hand side there is the Hindenburg hangar. It's worth just pointing that one out there. So as you can see, the aircraft has been set up so it just gently rotates back as the mass was released. It's about 500 kilograms heavy, and the pilot's now gently applying some power. And in a second, you'll see the vanes at the back here will start deflecting down, and that kicks the back end of the airship nice and level. So at the controls is our chief test pilot, uh, a gentleman called Dave Burns who's been with the company since the 80s. Uh, in the past, he's been a British Airways and Monarch pilot, but he's been flying airships for decades as well. So you can see just how gentle and serene the actual aircraft's flying. And you'll see in a second, the hangar that's just coming into, into view there, that's where we built the aircraft, Hangar 6 in Lakehurst. So it's a very successful flight. We flew around Lakehurst for 90 minutes, round about the military base and this is us now coming to land. So again, this is real-time, this is our approach speed, so it's nothing like a traditional aircraft. One of the benefits these aircraft can have is we don't, you don't need to protect a large approach and takeoff area. These aircraft can pretty much take, up, take off in a spiral and descend in the spiral if they have to. As you can see here, we're now just about to touch down. That's the Hindenburg hangar, again, on the right-hand side. So we're landing pretty much to the square meter that we took off from we have not been blown around by the winds or anything like that. We have fantastic control of the aircraft. And you can see the rear skids have just touched down and we're just gently rotating around and the front skids will touch down. So that was the end of our first flight. We all thought, fantastic. But what actually happened was we'd spent the budget for that year. We'd overspent the budget. We were getting pretty much 24-hour extensions. We were told to pack up, go home, wait till October, money will be made available. That's when the next round of Department of Defense budgets will will come out. If you remember, there was sequestration, the US fiscal cliff. There was the threat of that coming. So come October, we did not get the funding. Come November, we still didn't get the funding. December, we still didn't get the funding. Then February, you had the fiscal cliff. Or January, sorry, we had the fiscal cliff. And then February, we were officially cancelled. So the Department of Defence had to cut huge savings from their budget. We were destined for Afghanistan. The Americans wanted to pull out of Afghanistan. It was a very easy programme to cancel. So we were cancelled. We thought that's not particularly fair because that's our aircraft. We designed it. We built it. Can we start talking about getting it back? So eventually, we did actually get a decision from the US to say you can purchase your aircraft, you can take it back to the UK. So that was in August 2013. So we bought it back for $301,000. According to the National Audit Office, the Americans spent $297 million on that one aircraft. So we got quite a good deal on that one. But there was a catch. That was our only aircraft. that was our only order at the time. So we had downsized again, down to about 14, 15 people, and were given one month to get it out of Lakehurst. If we didn't get it out of Lakehurst, they were going to scrap the whole probe, they were going to scrap it. And we had no money. So we could only afford to send, I think, seven or eight people out to Lakehurst to pack up a 92-meter-long aircraft. And you can see the systems, this is the, the mission module where the flight deck and everything lives. That's all wrapped up on its way back to the U.K. And we did it, we managed to actually do it. And in December uh, 2013, 14 large boxes turned up in our hangars in Cardington. This one here contains the hull. So it's 80 foot long box, because we had this problem, we didn't know how to get the hull back to the UK. We couldn't fly it back because we only had one flight and there's no way that you could co- cross the Atlantic after one flight, there's n- nobody would say that it was safe. So we thought, right, how do we get it back? We didn't want to cut it up, because that's a big problem, putting it back together and, and steaming everything. So what we did was we manufactured, we got a local company in the States to build this 80 foot long box of girders, the sides fold down, and we slid that box underneath the hull. We then deflated the hull, and then we had to fold four and a half tons of material into that box, do the sides up, and then we shipped that back to the UK. So that's how we got the, the hull back. Then in January, we successfully air-inflated the hull. So we unpacked those boxes, filled it with air, and it actually held pressure. So we hadn't damaged the hull in that transportation process. The next big thing for us was, because we had been a US military programme, we were covered by ITAR, so the International Trade and Arms Regulations, which meant once the programme was cancelled, we had to prove to the Americans that we had no access to our data anymore. So despite the fact it was our design, we'd been paid for by the US government, so we had to show that all of our design was now locked up, we couldn't see any of it, we couldn't access it, all of our test data, everything was locked away. So we had to start from scratch if we were gonna do anything. So we had this aircraft back that we had no idea how we'd actually built it. Then in April, the State Department gave us something called a commodity jurisdiction. That basically said it was no longer a military item. It was free for us to do as as we saw fit. I think there's three countries in the world we're not allowed to sell to, but that's 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 basically the terms of the deal. So that was fantastic for us. We got our drawings back. We got our data back. We could start doing things. And then in May last year, we actually assembled enough money together to start rebuilding properly the aircraft and get it back in the skies. So here's some images of our rebuild process. So you can see the the inflated hull and we're just attaching what we call a pylon. That pylon gets attached to the side of the hull and you can start seeing the ropes that are gonna be attaching it to the side there. And then we slide our forward engine into that and we're actually able to rotate our engine. There's an axle there that we can rotate our engine up or down so we have more uh, thrust control that way. This picture here is showing what we call the battens at the back. One of the features of airships is because of the the skin tension is a function of pressure and radius, basically how far away from the centre you are. At the front we've got this nice big radius so we can actually attach, we can just hold on our propulsors with ropes. At the back we come much more to a point so we have to use what we call battens. So these are these structures that come around there and that's what we attach our rear propulsors to and that distributes the loads back into the skin of the hull. And if you're eagle-eyed, you can actually see the aircraft floating right now. We're off the ground. And this is us taking our mission module. As you can see, it's scalloped at the top as well, so it can fit in the cleft underneath the hull. And we're just wheeling that round. And that's, that's it now, all snugly put in place underneath the aircraft. And this is us putting on one of those rear propulsors onto those battens. So right now we have a fully complete aircraft. Uh, we're just going through all of our final wiring checks and it's about to be handed over for intensive ground tests. So uh, it's getting very, very close to being rolled out of the, of the hangar. This is one of the fins going on the top. Um, so yeah, you can see that's, that's the progress we've been making inside our, inside our hangar. So the reason that we're able to actually start all this work was we've been very successful with funding rounds, so both from the UK government and from the EU and also from the public. So we actually had our regional growth fund for the East of England uh, awarded us 3.4 million Uh, the EU gave us 2.5 million euros and we raised 2.2 million from crowdfunding. So that's this thing where people just, anybody can go into the internet and actually buy some shares in the company, give us some money that we then use. And in last month, we had a big launch again, Media Day, where we had another Crowdcube, CrowdCube launch. And we raised 1.25 million, not 1.2 there. And we actually raised half a million within hours of it actually being opening. So it's brilliant for us because we kind of feel we're capturing the imagination of the public, which is, which is great. It helps us a lot because we're still a small company of about 100 people. And what we're actually doing now um, is return to flight and certification. One of the big problems you have with airships is it's not quite an aircraft and it's not quite an airship. It's somewhere in between with these technologies. So we've been working with the regulators, both at the European level and at the British level, trying to understand just what rules do we have to follow. One of the big things that we've had in the last couple of weeks is we've had something called flight conditions from the European regulators and a permit to fly from the CAA. These are the two bits of paperwork that basically tell us now as long as we do the ground tests that we've said we're going to do legally, we can now fly the aircraft. So they're satisfied that we are now safe. We can fly over, over southern England for our flight trials. So we expect to be doing about 200 hours or so of flight trials around the UK. And uh, We have a, an MOD trial organised once we've finished those flight trials. So that's organised with Kinetic and our partner, Celex. And then there's other trials and demonstrations, so there's other interested parties wanting potentially to take like um, wind turbine blades. So inland wind farms, very difficult because they generally have to be hilly locations, it's difficult to get around the windy roads. We could actually float blades in situ, drop them down and they can be made where they are. So that's uh, a company we're talking to about doing a demonstration with that. We also got a £4.5 million grant for R&D from Innovate UK, another government body, and that's been huge for us. Um, That's been going for just about two years now, and a lot of the research has actually found its way into the, the rebuild. So what I do, flight sciences, I'm looking at the aerodynamics of the aircraft. So we've got some computational models, and we've been doing some wind tunnel tests, and we're showing that the results match very, very well. So what that allows me to do now is I'm able to start improving the design in the computers and be confident it'll actually flow out to the actual real aircraft. Other things that we've been doing, we've been doing lots of research on those pressure relief valves and the baloney inflation fans. And we're quite a resourceful company. Uh, We've never had much money and we've only got a few people. So this is the, the picture at the top right there is our test rig for our pressure systems. To get a proper back pressure, we thought, right, how do we do that? We'll take one of the spare shipping containers out the back, we'll make it airtight, we'll cut some holes in it, and that way we can actually inflate that up to back, so we get the correct back pressures for the fans and the valves to actually operate in. So that's been very, very successful. And we also built an engine test rig. So we had a ministerial visit to open our test rig. So this test rig um, basically has been built from the box that we transported the hull back in from. So we just cut it up and that's what we've built our test rig from. This test rig has six load cells so we can get the forces and moments that our engines produce when we start moving the vanes as well. So we have um, four diesel engines. Effectively they're running on Jet A1 but they're converted Mercedes truck engines. So by a German company called Technify, produced those for us. They're 320 horsepower on each corner of the aircraft. Um, something else this test rig allowed us to do is we could actually do an, what we call an unducted propulsor. The reason we put what we call this duct around about the propeller is at low speed, that hugely improves the efficiency of a propeller up to about 60, 65 knots. So we wanted to understand was our design, did it match theory? So we took a duct off and we actually ran without the, with and without a duct just to make sure our design actually matched what theory said we should be doing. Which it did, which was good. And we've also been doing again an awful lot of computational work as well. And we're showing that our computational work matches test results. So again we can start designing things, we can change our duct shapes, etc. Actually in the simulation world before we actually go to the expensive of building something. So now just a little bit on the actual history of where we actually are based. We're based in Cardington in Bedfordshire. Um, Airship hangars are traditionally called sheds, so Shed 1 and Shed 2. Just for ease we've gone back to really calling it a hangar. Shed 1, the one that we're actually in, is on the left hand side as you're looking at it here. It was built in 1915 but really became used in 1916 so it's 100 years old. Our our shed. HEV have always been based round about Cardington uh, since its inception. And since 2012, Shed 1, so again, the left hand picture, the left hand uh, hanger in that picture there, which is all looking brown, has been refurbished round about us, which has been very interesting. So, about millions have been spent on this refurbishment. Every girder has been inspected, replaced. It's been a fantastic job that's been done in the whole place. Uh, But that was all done round about us, which actually meant us having to shift our entire aircraft back and forth within the hangar, depending on what part they're actually working on at that time. So it allows us to fit, we can now fit two of our aircraft, either the Airlander 10 or the Airlander 50, who easily fit within that space. So we reckon that we could be doing 10 to 12 aircraft a year in that facility. We obviously have another hangar next door to us, Shed 2, which if things went well, we could eventually purchase. And to give you some stats about the size of the hangar, it's just over 800 foot long, about 18 stories high, and has five acres of floor space. So there is other interest. It's not just us doing airships right now. Um, The French, back in 2013, uh, Francois Hollande announced 34 plans to revitalise French industry. Airships are one of those plans and they've supplied tens, hundreds of millions of euros to, the, to these potential 34 plans. The French are doing a stratospheric airship, a pseudo-satellite, something that will stay in the stratosphere for years at a time. And that's the picture that's up there on the top left. It's a project by Talas Alenia. They're also looking at a cargo, a heavy lift aircraft so details are still a little bit sketchy on that one, but they have signed a deal with the Chinese state aviation company, Avic. So they're now partnered with the Chinese on looking at these heavy lift airships. They're primarily looking at them from a timber. France actually has its second largest trade deficit after oil is timber, despite the fact that it's some of the largest forests in Europe. So they're actually looking at ways of getting that timber to the ports, etc., and they're thinking that airships are the best way of doing that. On the right hand side here we have Aeroscraft, that's a Californian company, they have a different method of controlling heaviness, they compress gas, uh, that's a test flight they had, and the aircraft was only cleared to be a tethered flight, so there's lots of ropes attached to the flight right there. Unfortunately, uh, during a storm in the hangar behind that, part of the hangar roof collapsed and destroyed that aircraft, so they're currently fighting with the US Navy for compensation. But down here is Lockheed Martin, so this is Lockheed Martin's latest design. We know they're still very, very interested in airship technology. They um, published with the US regulators draft regulations for this class of aircraft a couple of years ago. So we know they're serious. They just signed a deal with a UK-based company for 12 aircraft, I think it's a $480 million deal. So. We see that as great for us, competition-wise, because it shows we're not the only people, we're not the only mad people doing this. There's some serious companies out there looking at this, and if somebody signs up with Lockheed in an exclusive deal, they have to come, if somebody else wants to get into the market, they have to come to us. So we, th- we see it as being a very good thing that we actually have a large competitor. And finally, last slide here, um, we are aware that this Project kind of captures the imagination of people, um, it harks back to the days of the golden age of airships and what have you. So, we are very committed to STEM outreach, so, going out there for the, the science, technology, engineering, and maths. We've been going out to schools, we give talks like this. We're a small company, so we're trying to do our bit. We've taken on interns, we've, we've taken on um, some apprentices. We have three apprentices. Um, the picture at the top right there is a gentleman called Barry Robertson. So he, went, he came to see one of my lectures, and he offered his time for free. He's gone out now, and he's given over a1,000 he spoke to over 1,000 children, and he has a whole curriculum based, if you want to do science or engineering or social history, he goes off to the schools and they actually start doing this work with the kids. So we feel that you know this is a, something we're very, very proud of, and we're trying to influence the, local, the, the kids, get them interested in science and engineering. So we're very, very proud of it, and we hope that other people are too. So thank you very much for your attention. And we also have a supporters club called Airlander Club. That's its address there. It does cost money to join, but you get newsletters, and you can visit the hangar through Airlander Club. We do guided tours. Today we had two guided tours. So it's, uh, that's the way to get in. So thank you very much, and thank any you questions?
0: Sure you fascinating I have to say a lot of things that I certainly didn't know um, I'm sure there's some questions from the audience um, any takers for any questions just bear with me
1: while I bring the mic over to you so everyone can I'm just interested to know how long it takes to fill with helium so you normally if you're doing um, there's two ways of doing it the way we did it in America was you start pumping helium in and you have a a rope mesh over the hull. Because obviously the helium's always wanted to escape up to the ceiling. So you have to very, very gently let the ropes out so you keep the bubble in the middle because if it wants to rush to one end, it's it's away. It's up in the ceiling, it's not a good thing. So we've done it differently this time. And what we're doing is called a dirty fill. So we inflate it with air initially, and then we start scrubbing. We start pumping some helium in and we start scrubbing. So we eject some of the, the air and we just purify the helium. And as we add weight, we put more helium in. So all the time, we keep the aircraft about a ton light, about 1,000, so it's wanted to lift off the ground. We just restrain it with ropes all the time. Uh, about 1,000 a a thousand kilograms light. Um, so that's what we do, if we're adding a propulsor, we'll shoot a little bit more helium, and we're constantly purifying, so we do it slightly differently. So this time, it will t- take us pushing on two months to completely get the helium in there because we're building it as we're going along. But it would normally take um, a day or two if you're doing it with the old rope method, just, just the length of time, just to keep it controlled. Yeah, just bear with
0: me for accepting everyone. Yeah. Thank you very much. Definitely, so, yeah. Thanks. Uh, because it's a very low density vehicle, it must be very sensitive to wind and turbulence
1: and so on. Certainly, with the Airships, like ships, uh, the larger they get, the less susceptible they are to the smaller gusts. They ride them out better. Um, we certainly have with our low speed control, that's what we'd use for any gusts on the ground. So anything that hits us side on, we just use our vector thrust to point us back into wind so we don't get pushed sideways. So we think that we've got that under control. That's our hope anyway.
0: You have any wind speed limits
1: to so we have 35 knots for ground, Sorry. 35 knots for ground operations. Uh, we can fly, um, we can be doing 80 knots in the in the sky. So any weather, I mean, generally airships would always look at weather patterns. You try not to fly into the teeth of the wind. You take the weather patterns into account and fly around. To there is definitely. Um, I think the Farmer website says there's the intention or the, the hope that Airlander will be flying at Farmborough. We are trying our best. Um, as I said we're just really kicking off our intensive ground test phase. Once we've successfully exited that, we'll take it outside. We'll do some final checks and then we do our first flight. Um, we have to do a series of flights before we would be allowed to go to Farnborough uh, just to get confidence in the aircraft and we also have to speak to European regulators just to, we have to get a little bit of paper signed. So that's the plan.
0: Another question? Good evening. Um, how advanced are you in uh, uh, cargo transport, uh, unloading?
1: So when we actually were successful in getting the Air Lander 10 back, we had been doing an awful lot of work on the Airlander 50 because that's what we thought was going to break, that was going to be the important one. So, we had actually got to the stage where we were just about to build a test rig for the loading and unloading of cargo. Um, but then all of our attention switched back to the Airlander 10 when we, we got the, the US said you can have it back. So, that's kind of on hold for the time being. We're just all of the efforts of the company is getting the Airlander 10 flying and then hopefully we start selling these aircraft and then. Yes, we'll start looking again at the cargo, how we load and unload cargo. Thank you. Well. Another question. <laughs> yes, sir, just bear with me. While
0: quickly while I've got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Carry on. Yeah. When you day. take 10 tonnes of load off the aircraft, yes.
1: you have to compensate if I some load back on. You do. So, uh, uh, so, so we do have... Um, Certainly, if you were to do, remove 10 tons at once, you'd certainly have to have a clever way of getting weight back on the aircraft. With our vectored thrust, we can't be providing four tons or so of down thrust immediately. So that that helps us certainly. Um, we would never, depending on the situation, we wouldn't normally take 10 tons off at once. It'd be normally in sections. So with the, the vectored thrust that we have, we would then start re appropriately
0: question here. yeah. <coughs> yes. Um obviously it's a uh, somewhat um, restricted. restrictive I mean, albeit it has certain advantages. What is your potential market? What what actually do you think you can sell and to which
1: areas? I think right now the Airlander ten I th- personally I think one of the, the big potential markets is luxury tourism. Because the, the airship itself is unpressurised, oh, the cabin is unpressurised, you can open windows, you could have a viewing, ge- a viewing deck, etc. So, you know, people spend tens of millions on luxury yachts. This aircraft could be doing exactly the same thing, but you could be flying over city centres, over the pyramids, all this type of stuff, and you could have, you know, it could be done very, very plush. So, we do see that's a potential. There's money out there for that, there's interested parties. So that's a starting point, and again, there is the, the military side, the surveillance. There's the commercial side, events like the Olympics or a Glastonbury. Police control centres, advertising, all this type of stuff. Now the question here: How
0: complicated is it to fly? I mean, you talked earlier about the pilot altering the trim by inflating the
1: yeah. front
0: or not. Surely that's has taken apart by the uh, control
1: system. So right now, no. Um, it's something we're working on. Um, right now, for us in the airship world, it seems second nature. We've just taken on an, a, a test pilot. So he's a tornado pilot, US Navy test pilot, school trained. He's looked at our control system and just went, that's, that's quite intense. But for us, it's, it's very, very simple and very logical for us. But we are certainly working. Um, in the next year or so, we'll have a, an automated system for trim control. So right now it's all manual. We do have not there's an auto system, but not very clever. We will have the ability in about a year's time of the pilot can just select a, a CG state. Yeah. Another question here: yes. Would
0: the European Union affect your finances uh, <laughs> and, and make regulations
1: easier or harder? I actually genuinely have no idea what would happen in that situation. I mean, we've EASA. Are, are, so the European regulators are the primary regulator now. Mm-hmm. So that's who we've been dealing with in Cologne. And we've had, well, we just had a visit last week. Um, the CAA has some jurisdiction but nothing like what EAS has set the rules. So it's the Europeans set the rules that we follow. So I don't...
0: But you work without European rules, just
1: as a British company. Uh, you, well, that's an interesting I'm point. Sorry, i, I do. <laughs> It's not, something, it's not something that I've looked at, but within the company... And are they currently
0: financing you?
1: The EU certainly are. There's, what, there's a programme called Horizon 2020, which they are giving us some money towards. We're not
0: here, David. The Americans have as trustworthy as they are. How
1: yeah. should we get payments? So, the, we did actually have a very good deal with Northrop. They have no claim on our technology, which is quite a nice thing. What we have done is... Um, As I said, the the difference between how much we paid to bring it back and how much the Americans spent on it, we are actually saying to the Americans, any flight test data we collect, you can have. We'll just give it to you so you can also analyse this. Because ultimately, if it does work well, they've been interested before, if we give them more data, then they might actually say, actually, we'll just buy one. I mean, we just heard that um, Google had been looking at airships, heavy lift airships and their head of um, projects basically said they were not willing to spend $200 million just to get a first data point, just to get the prototype, whereas what we're able to do is we can actually say to companies, look, we can show you our data because we've got the prototype, we've already built it. So that's where we're really hoping that that will make a big difference for us in comparison to some of the competitors. David, another question.
0: Yep. David, is it totally unrealistic to
1: contemplate the
0: photovoltaic skin?
1: That's something we are actively looking at, because we have the seven thousand square meters of area, uh, probably about two and a half thousand on the upper surface. That's a lot of area for PV cells up there. We have at the back we have room for potentially another engine. Now that could be an electric engine. When we're um, at EQ, we don't have to generate any lift anymore. So when an aircraft, seven hundred and forty-seven, etc when they generate lift, they're generating a lot of drag because of that lift. We don't generate that same amount of drag. So once we're at EQ, we can just be pushed along by our electric engine. Thanks.
0: One more question maybe from anybody else. Anymore? One more up fronted. Hang on just a second, so while i get around to it. We, there you go. Yeah. May seem rather negative. <laughs> but um, you can see I'm white-haired and quite ancient purple. Yeah, I can remember Skyship being demonstrated at Farnborough, uh, and it was branded then as being an excellent thing for the future, and so on and so forth. don't think it really sort of made progress that it was expected to. What makes you think that Airland was going to do that, whereas other ventures in the past have, have failed us? I
1: think there's the Difference this time is this hybrid technology, this combining the aerodynamics with buoyancy with vector thrust. It allows it to operate much more similar to an aircraft, um, to a normal fixed-wing aircraft. It doesn't have to have a masting at EQ and all these problems of tailwinds and all sorts of stuff. We can sit on the ground and we can we can manoeuvre like an aircraft on the ground, and we can take off. So it's a different way of looking at the problem. So you can get your loads to where you have to, you have to, You get your cargo to where it has to go and you can get it on the ground and you can get it out to where it has to be. So that's where we're thinking this time is different from the blimps of the airships of the past.
0: So how long before you get a commitment to the, you know, to the project as such?
1: From I mean we are certainly talking to a lot of parties, a lot of interested customers. I'll, I. Th- I think our feeling internally is a lot of people are now waiting for a successful flight test campaign. We have to show that our fuel burn numbers, that our manoeuvrability, our ground handling are, as we advertise, um, there's lots and lots of interest out there, Uh, we just need to prove it.
0: Thank you ladies and gentlemen, David Stewart.